Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode five of the Forge of Freedom. Today, we're going to talk about the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. And we know those 10 first 10 amendments as the Bill of Rights. And I'm going to not going to so much get into detail about each of the first 10 amendments, but I want to talk about the history, why they were adopted, uh, and why they're so important still today. So to begin, most people know at least some of the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution. But I want to just kind of highlight each of the first 10. Um, I'm not going to talk about exactly what they protect, but give, give a highlight and overview of what they are. So the First Amendment, most people know, is the protects the freedom of, uh, freedom of speech. The Second Amendment the, the, protects the right to keep and bear arms. The Third Amendment uh, protects the freedom against quartering of soldiers. The Fourth Amendment, the freedom against search and seizure. Uh, the Fifth Amendment, the right to due process. The Sixth Amendment, the right to a speedy trial. The Seventh Amendment, the right to a jury trial in civil suits. The Eighth Amendment protects the freedom against cruel and unusual punishment. The Ninth Amendment says that the enumeration of certain rights shall not be used to uh, say that there aren't other rights that are retained by the people. And then the Tenth Amendment says that uh, those rights not, not specifically um, described or prescribed are rights reserved by the states or the people. So there you go. That's kind of a highlight of the first 10. Uh, they, it's more complex than that. Certain amendments protect uh, more rights than, than I've generally described here. Um, and I'll, I'll likely get into some of these amendments in more detail in future episodes where I'll likely devote entire episodes to particular amendments. But nevertheless, I want to I get back to, like I said earlier, kind of a history of these amendments, why they were adopted, uh, the impetus behind them, and uh, why they're still important today. Early in United States history, and shortly after the Revolutionary War that we fought against Great Britain, the United States operated under a loose form of government known as the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation controlled the federal government and the operation of the federal government from 1781 to 1789 when it was superseded by the Constitution that we still have today. As the Confederation Congress attempted to govern the, the growing country, its, its delegates discovered that the limitations placed on the government rendered it ineffective at doing certain tasks. And this was partly by design, right? Because the United States had just separated from a strong form of, of government uh, in, a, in a monarchy uh, in Great Britain. So, so 
people during the revolutionary era were skeptical of big government or centralized government. But as the government's weaknesses became more apparent, some prominent political thinkers began asking for changes to the Articles of Confederation, and they were really hoping to create a, a stronger government. And as more states became interested in meeting to revise the Articles of Confederation, a meeting was set in Philadelphia in May of 1787, and this became known as the Constitutional Convention. Delegates quickly agreed that the defects of the frame of government couldn't be remedied by simply altering the Articles of Confederation. So they went beyond their intended goal or their initial goal of revising the Articles uh, and sought to replace the Articles of Confederation with a new constitution. And on May, uh, I'm sorry, on March 4th, 1789, the government under the Articles of Confederation was replaced with the federal government under the Constitution. The new Constitution provided for a much stronger federal government by establishing a chief executive, which we call the president, uh, establishing the courts and the Congress, and, and also created taxing powers because the country had a substantial amount of debt uh, after the war. But the new constitution wasn't adopted without a great deal of debate, primarily between two groups, the, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists advocated for the constitution and a more powerful form of central government. The Anti-Federalists advocated a more de decentralized, local, and weaker form of government, a more libertarian form of government. The Anti-Federalists were like, hey, we just fought a war. We fought a revolution to separate from a powerful central government. Why would we create a new powerful form of central government? And this debate took took place uh, in the public. There were lots of uh, letters and pamphlets. In fact, there's a, a compilation of writing that uh, is quite popular even today and quite influential on political thinking called the, the Federalist Papers. And Alexander Hamilton was one of the contributors to the Federalist Papers, and he argued that the Bill of Rights are not only unnecessary in the proposed constitution, but would even be dangerous. And that's quite something to think about, really, that Alexander Hamilton, an advocate of the constitution, thought the Bill of Rights would be dangerous. And he said they would contain various exceptions to powers not granted by the constitution, and in this way would afford a, a pretext to claim more powers than were actually granted. And here's a quote from, from Hamilton. He says, For why declare that things shall not be done which there is no power to do? Why, for instance, should it be said that the liberty of the press shall not be restrained when no power is given 
by which restrictions may be imposed. It would furnish to men disposed to usurp a plausible premise for claiming that power. They might urge with a semblance of reason that the provision against restraining the liberty of the press afforded a clear implication that a power to prescribe proper regulations concerning it was intended to be vested in the national government. But anti-federalists disagreed. And they often wrote under the pseudonym Brutus. And Brutus rejected Hamilton's logic and wrote the following. If everything which is not given to the federal government is reserved to the people, what propriety is there in these exceptions? Does this Constitution anywhere grant the power of suspending habeas corpus to make ex post facto laws? It certainly does not in express terms. The only answer that can be given is that these are implied in the general powers granted. All the powers which the Bill of Rights guard against the abuse of are contained or implied in the general ones granted by this Constitution, which reaches to everything which concerns human happiness, life, liberty, and property. The exercise of power in this case should be restrained within proper limits. So Brutus, an anti-federalist, was claiming the Constitution doesn't prescribe specific powers to do the sorts of things like restrict freedom of speech or to restrict the right to keep and bear arms, but the general powers granted to the Constitution would be used to imply certain powers by people who wanted to usurp power. Brutus also questioned whether the people surrendering nothing un under the Constitution, according to Alexander Hamilton. He says, but rulers have the same propensities as other men. They are as likely to use the power with which they are vested for private purposes and to the injury and oppression of those over whom they are placed. It is therefore as proper that bounds shall be set to their authority. Furthermore, he went on to say, those who have governed have been found in all ages ever active to enlarge their power and abridge the public liberty. This has induced the people in all countries where any sense of freedom remained to fix barriers against the encroachment of their rulers. So Brutus the anti and the anti-federalists were saying we need the natural tendency of government and of rulers is to encroach on the liberties of its citizens. And we need certain protections in place to protect fundamental liberties. And even though the Constitution doesn't grant specific authority to infringe on those liberties, the tendency will be to infringe on them anyway. And we need protections in place to preserve those liberties. Hamilton's argument and the anti-federalist, or sorry, the federalist argument was in essence that the federal government can only act where its authority 
its power had been clearly spelled out in the Constitution. Therefore, it would provide no added protection for Americans, but would provide a pretext for unwanted, unwarranted expansions of federal power. And Brutus, once again, the Anti-Federalists, their rebuttal was that the federal government would grow beyond those enumerated powers unless Americans' fundamental liberties were clearly laid out in a Bill of Rights. And I think, you know, today, given how far we've seen the government grow and exceed its constitutionally enumerated powers, despite the constraints provided by the Bill of Rights, I think we should be, be thankful that, that Brutus and the, and the Anti-Federalists won the debate insofar as they obtained a Bill of Rights. They were opposed to the adoption of the Constitution. They lost that battle, but at least they obtained the Bill of Rights. And I think it's worth taking their arguments and the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists seriously uh, today even. I think if we want to become more faithful to the Constitution, to the Bill of Rights, um, we need to pay more attention to, to those liberties that, that they sought and fought so hard to protect. So during these debates prior to the, uh, the adoption of the Constitution, uh, in an effort to appease the Anti-Federalists to gain enough support to adopt the Constitution, the Federalists reluctantly agreed to what we now know as the Bill of Rights, or the first ten amendments to the Constitution. There were many more amendments proposed, uh, I believe several hundred, um, but these ten were adopted. And the Federalists wanted to adopt enough to attract sort of the centrist anti-federalists, uh, not the most extreme anti-federalists, but they wanted to, to persuade enough anti-federalists to swing in favor or to change their position in favor of the Constitution. And that's really what the Bill of Rights was meant to do. In fact, Madison and, and many of the other federalists hope that the anti-federalists would uh, go away and that these Bill of Rights, these amendments, would be quietly forgotten after the adoption of the Constitution. But the anti-federalists, particularly uh, in Virginia and New York, would not permit these amendments to be forgotten, these promises that the federalists had made to, get the, uh, to pass the Constitution, to adopt the Constitution. And the Second Convention movement led uh, by Patrick Henry and George Mason in Virginia and proposed by the New York Convention would make sure that these amendments were adopted. And I mentioned Alexander Hamilton earlier, but one of the, another, another prominent Federalist uh, actor here was James Madison, and a, a well-known one even today. And it's largely because of his efforts and his study of the deficiencies of the Constitution uh, pointed out by the Anti-Federalists <clears throat> that he crafted a series of these corrective proposals in the form of the Bill of Rights. And Congress ultimately approved 
12 amendments on September 25th, 1789, and then submitted them to the states for ratification. Ultimately, only 10 were ratified, and although Madison's proposed amendments included a provision to extend the protection of some of the Bill of Rights to the states, the amendments that were finally submitted for ratification applied only to the federal government. And the door for their application upon state governments was only opened in the 1860s following the ratification of the 14th Amendment. So for most of the early part of the uh, 1800s, uh, the first 10 amendments only applied to, federal, to the federal government and only applied to restrain the federal government, not state governments. And since the early 20th century, both uh, federal and state courts have used the 14th Amendment to apply portions of the Bill of Rights to state and local governments through the doctrine of uh, incorporation. So the Bill of Rights were ultimately adopted in 1791, and it was really sort of a consolation prize for the Anti-Federalists because, like I said, they were mostly opposed to the adoption of the Constitution, but at least if there was going to be a Constitution, a more centralized form of government, they wanted an assurance that certain rights would be protected through the Bill of Rights. And this has perhaps been the most important part of American uh, legal history, and has served as a really as a reminder of the sort of laissez-faire libertarian philosophy that permeated American political theory uh, at the time of the founding. Unfortunately, words written on parchment on paper do not actually protect anyone's freedoms, and legal constraints on state power are really only as good as the ideological backing they receive from the populace. Nevertheless, for all its weaknesses, the, the Bill of Rights, I think when, when taken seriously by the, by the population, has played a part in preserving basic human rights for Americans that were eviscerated in many nations long ago. Thanks to the First Amendment, and those who support it, for example, freedom of speech is often more respected in the United States than in any place one might hold as an example, any other place that one might hold as an, as an example. One, for instance, can be arrested and imprisoned for saying unpopular things in certain parts of Europe and Asia, just to name a few examples. And without the efforts of the Anti-Federalists and without the Bill of Rights, I think it's fair to say that the Constitution would have done nothing to restrain federal government power. So I want to finish with just a, a few final thoughts. Uh, first, I think it's important to point out that the Bill of Rights was not enacted to give us any rights. It was enacted so that the government could not take away from us any of the rights that we already had. We don't have free speech because of the First Amendment. 
the First Amendment only protects the right to free speech that we already had, the natural right. And the same could be said for the, for the Second Amendment, for instance. Uh, the Second Amendment does not give us the right to keep and bear arms. We already had a right to self-defense and, by extension, the right to keep and bear arms. The Second Amendment simply protects that right, and that's a key distinction because if we are given a right, that's not a right. That's a, that's a privilege that we've gotten from the government. Uh, these The first ten amendments were, were meant to protect individual rights that we already had. And I also want to uh, talk about this quote by Harry Truman, who was not exa exactly a, a friend to freedom, but nevertheless, he, he had this to say about, about free speech, and I think it's equally applicable to some other freedoms. He says, of course, there are dangers in religious freedom and freedom of opinion, but to deny these rights is worse than dangerous. It is absolutely fatal to liberty. The external threat to liberty should not drive us into suppressing liberty at home. Those who want the government to regulate matters of the mind and spirit are like men who are so afraid of being murdered that they commit suicide to avoid assassination. So when the government talks about taking away liberty to protect our liberty, Think about the Patriot Act, the FISA courts, uh, infringements on the First, Second, and Fourth Amendments, uh, the TSA, the entire Department of Homeland Security, the, the list goes on. I think it's essentially doing the very thing that Truman pointed out in this quote, committing suicide to avoid assassination by taking away freedom to protect freedom. This is something that we, I think we have to be aware of and we have to guard against whenever the government uh, proposes taking away our liberties. All right, so that's going to conclude our discussion about the Bill of Rights, at least for now. Like I said earlier, I, I'll certainly devote some future episodes to discussing some of the amendments in more detail. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you, you did, don't forget to like and subscribe. I'll be releasing a weekly episode, as I have been so far, uh, generally on Sunday evenings. And sometime in the next few weeks, I'll have my first guest on the show. I've been working on lining up some guests for you, and I think uh, you'll enjoy having someone to listen to other than just me. It'll be more conversational. I know I'm, at least I'm looking forward to it anyway. Uh, next week, we'll discuss the concept of qualified immunity. It's a topic that's been in the news more often over the last few years uh, with, off, with officer-involved use of force incidents. When you think about uh, George Floyd and more recently the death of Tyree Nichols, I think it's a good time to become familiar, familiar with the concept of of qualified immunity. It's really past time uh, for people to become um, familiar with the concept. I think qualified immunity is something that most people in the general public do not understand, maybe have never even heard of. 
And I think it has more to do with the problems in policing than race or implicit bias, which is generally suggested as the problem by major media outlets. That's a controversial position to take, uh, but I feel quite strongly about it and hope you tune in next week to learn more about it. Anyway, I hope you, you learned something, and if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like and subscribe. I look forward to talking to you again next week. Um, until then, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.